Wow, what an incredible, incredible uh, arc that we've had already, and the best is yet to come. Would you agree with that? And I want to, uh, it's my uh, privilege to introduce our guest speaker, but before we do, I want to honor Pastor Brian Houston in the house. We love you. We are so grateful for you being here. And, uh, Gang, I know that you know this, but in my opinion, this is the most influential pastor in the world today, and he's taught us how, given his culture, and, uh, and, and, he, and he's here, and in a session that he's not speaking in, and let me tell you something, that shows the heart that this man has, and thank you so much for being a part of what we're doing here. We love you. Um, I think all the, all the sessions are... Are, are important, but I think this might be the most important session uh, that we do in the conference here today. Um, as you know, our country is as racially polarized, politically divided as it's ever been. And I believe that God is calling us as a church to be a shining light and an example of healing in the land. Would you agree with that? Our guest speaker today is my friend, Miles McPherson. Uh, Miles is a part of the lead team here at the Ark. He also is the founding pastor of The Rock in San Diego. Uh, he's married 34 years uh, to his wife, Debbie, and uh, they have three kids and one grandkid. I think most of them are named Miles. Uh, I think his son's Miles, his grandson's Miles, so that makes it a lot easier uh, all the way around. But uh, uh, he played football for four, uh, well, he played football for a number of years, but for four years for the San Diego Chargers and uh, went through some drug addiction issues issues, found Jesus, uh, started the Rock Church in the year 2000, and uh, listen to this, guys. They have recorded over one million dedications of people's lives to Christ in, in that time. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Uh, Miles has written a new book. It's coming out September 11th. It's called The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. Uh, also, he, and, and you'll get, I, I think, a chapter of that uh, from us a little bit later. And then also, and this is what's exciting to me, is on September the 15th, they're going to have a simulcast uh, divine, uh, designed for churches from various ethnicities to sit down. They're going to guide us through it. Seacoast is going to do it. And uh, guide us through conversations that we need to be having uh, on race. And, and so um, I, I asked Miles, I, I said, Miles, you are the man with the message, you have the voice, and this is the right time. And uh, I believe that he's going to be one of the leaders, and already is, uh, for this issue in our country. So will you stand on your feet and welcome with me today my friend, Miles McPherson. Amen. Amen. My, my wife is also named Miles, by the way. My daughter's are named Miles. They're my dog's name Miles. Um, how many of y'all, by show of hands, are not part of ARC? If you could raise your hand, just raise your hand up high. I'm going to give you two reasons why you need to join. Uh, Greg and Chris. Uh, and I'm dead serious. Um, I, I don't know who to start with. Chris, thank you for just being a good brother. And, and last night was life-changing. It was life-changing. I was reading, and when Elisha asked Elijah... He said, I want a double portion. And Elijah said, if you see me take him to heaven, uh, you'll get the double portion. I was wondering, what was that all about? And God said to me, he had to see what was possible. I wanted to show him a miracle. A lot of times we're asking if we don't know. We're asking for something we don't know what we're asking for. And when I come here, I get to see what God can do. 
And so thank you for being not only what you've done, but who you are and what you say speak to us. Can I get an amen? And I also want to, uh, Greg, thank you for opening this, this up. Greg called us into a meeting and said, listen, us white guys, we want to listen. Can y'all talk to us? That doesn't happen. Um, part of what I'm going to tell you is that that doesn't happen. We are not listened to. So thank you for the opportunity to be listened to. Uh, there's a Japanese art, uh, ancient art form called kitsugi. I was probably to pronounce it wrong. And in kitsugi, they take pottery that was broken and they bring it back together. They, they reassemble the pottery with gold. And they take all the pieces and put the pottery back together. And the belief is that the uh, pottery that was repaired is more valuable than the original. <laughs> Satan has done an amazing job at splitting us apart. And by the way, Satan's the enemy, not the white man, not the black man, not the poor, not the immigrant. Satan's the enemy. Can I get amen? And Satan has done a great job of, bringing, of, of dividing us through different kinds of racism, personally mediated racism, one to another, white, black, Hispanic, Asian. It's not a white, black thing only. It's all of us all around the world globally as well. Internalized racism where people start to internalize the message that they have been told. There are people who have been told that they're less than and now believe it. And they hate themselves and their own culture. Internalized racism, you might not have heard of that. And then there's institutional racism. There's systems designed to keep people in place. The devil has done an amazing job of splitting us apart. But God, <laughs> God, God, Jesus has this thing about bringing broken pieces together. Can I get amen? He has this thing about making things that were ugly, beautiful, broken, fixed. And he can't do it and won't do it except through us. We are his vehicle. It has to be us, but we have to do something different. We have to move past the optics of diversity. You can have lots of colors and, and nationalities in your church and in your house, but they're not in your heart. They could be in your room, but they're not, you don't have a ministry. You can have a diverse crowd, but not a diverse ministry. So we want to move past churches ministering to neighborhoods where they feel comfortable and all the neighborhoods that God has given them. Don't drive around. I had, a, I had a prayer meeting in San Diego years ago, and, and, and uh, it, I intentionally put it in the black community, and I had pastors driving there, and they said, we've never been to this part of the town. I said, so you're telling me you fly to Africa to minister to poor black people, but you won't go 10 minutes right down the street. Amen. We have to get past where God says, I'm going to call you to go wherever. And by the way, if you're a black church in the black community, are you going to the Hispanic community right down the street? Uh, if you're a Hispanic, are you going to the black church? It's all of us. Can I get amen? It's all of us. So we got to move past it. Let me give you some context of who I am and where I get this from. I have uh, two black uh, grandfathers from Jamaica, all my grandparents from Jamaica. I'm not going to do this, though. <laughs> I got 40 jobs, brother, 40 jobs. I, and, and I got uh, <laughs> two, 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 both my grandmothers, all of my grandparents grew up in Jamaica. One grandmother was half Chinese, half black. The other grandmother was white. Her parents sent her from Jamaica with Cindy's. They didn't want her to marry a black Jamaican, so they sent her to Jamaica, New York, where she met a black Jamaican. <laughs> I grew up in a black neighborhood, went to school in a white neighborhood. Because of this tan color, I was too dark for the white people, so I got called all those names. I was too light for the black people, so I got called all those names. So that's why I'm learning Spanish. <laughs> And I am learning Spanish. I'm going to preach my first Spanish sermon on the 6th of May. My church is also as diverse as San Diego. My church is also diverse as San Diego. We are leaning into this. Two years ago, there was a shooting in San Diego. 
Uh, immigrant from Uganda was shot by a police officer. It was filmed. It was put on TV. For a week, our city did this. And for a week, the devil said, you have to pick one of each side. You have to be against the police or for the police, for the black community, against the black community. The devil gave you two options. In every race conversation, the devil's only going to give you two options. And in those two options, he's going to say, you're going to be on one side against the other, fighting the other, and you have to pick. There's a third option. <laughs> and that's what the book is about, the third option. In Joshua, and I'll read this real quick. In Joshua chapter 5, Joshua's leading the Jews into the promised land. It says in verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes up and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword. And Joshua said to him, are you for us or our adversaries? Angel, you have to pick a side. Are you on our side or this side? Angel said, uh-uh, homie, don't do that. I, I don't pick sides. I am the side. <laughs> So he said, he said, he said, are you for us and them? He said, no. He said, no, no, I ain't asked you that. Are you for us? And he said, no. He said, if you bow down, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You bow down and worship. The only way you're going to get into the promised land, if you honor and worship the presence of God in your midst. This is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God. Can I get amen? And so I want to talk to you about that because the third option is that we look at every single one of us. And by the way, save or not save people. People you don't like, people you have nothing in common with every single person. What do we have 100% in common? By the way, we're all 99.5% genetically the same. I'm not even talking about that. White, black, Asian, rich, poor, you're 99.9% genetically exactly the same, but you are 100% the same that God has given the same image to every single one of us. Amen. And the image of God has the responsibility to acknowledge itself in other people. The image of God has the ability to acknowledge itself in other people. The image of God has the ability to walk with God, love with God, like God, forgive like God, encourage like God, speak like God. We, we do God a disservice when we are racist or when we look down on people because we are looking at the image of God and someone else saying, your image is inferior to my image when that's not biblical at all. That every single image is the same value because God can't, God can't look down on himself. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and he's the same there, 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 and every single one of us. And so I want to talk about how we got divided. Here's what I'm talking about. How we got divided and then how we can apply the third option to bring us back together. Sociologists call it, uh, call our division uh, grouping. In group, out group. Uh, grouping is the way we sort people into either like me or not like me. This is a group. Christians, ministers, senior pastors is a group. Uh, uh, mega church senior pastors is another group. Women are a group. Men are a group. Youth pastors are a group. We're all part of many groups. Football is a group. And when you are in part of a group, you are intimately involved and intimately knowledgeable about your group. Okay? If you're a senior pastor, you know senior pastor issues. If you're, if you're assistant pastor, you know assistant pastor issues. And so you, whatever group you're in, you understand uh, the intimacies of that group. Whatever group you're not in, that's called your out group. You don't know intimate information about that. That's why we make ignorant statements about people we don't know about. We, we, we say those people because we don't know and we're ignorant, so we shouldn't say anything. <laughs> but that's the out group. But your in group, you know all the intricacies of your in group. There's a thing called in group bias. In group bias is your tendency to give preferential treatment to the people of your in group. I want you to think with me right now. And by the way, uh, um, take this personal, but don't take it personal. 
Are you, do you follow what I'm saying? Let the Spirit of God minister to you. We got to think. We got to get past this. In-group bias is when you look at people who are like you, whether it be by profession, by race, by look, and you give them preferential treatment. I'm going to give you a list of some things. They're going to go on the screen. I am more comfortable with those like me. I am more inclined to spend time socially with those like me. I am more patient with those like me. I give the benefit of the doubt quicker to those like me. I express more grace given when mistakes are made to those like me. It is easier to communicate with those like me. I assume I will get along easier with those like me. I am more willing to get out of, I go out of my way to help those like me. I possess more positive assumptions about those like me. Same minute, that makes sense. Hey, we're in Alabama. You got people coming. Guy walks in the room. Hey, how you doing? Hey, hey, I play for the uh, for the football team. Oh, you all of a sudden be part of my in group. I'm gonna give you grace. Come on in. How can I give it? See, hey, date my daughter. Whatever you want to do, everything's cool. <laughs> y'all do that in Alabama. Y'all good. Out group is the opposite. There's out group discrimination. Out group discrimination is withholding in group bias against people. Why? Because they're not part of your group. I am less comfortable with those not like me. I am less inclined to spend time socially with those not like me. I am less patient with those not like me. I give, the, I, I give the benefit of the doubt slower to those not like me. I express less grace when mistakes are made by those not like me. It is more difficult to communicate with those not like me. I don't assume you will get along, I will get along with those not like me. I am less willing to go out of my way to help those not like me. I possess less positive assumptions about those like me. Listen, people say, well, I'm a racist, so I'm not a racist. You only got two choices. Here's your third choice. Your third choice is you're human, and you can work better at being unbiased. But you can say, you know what, maybe I do give a little preferential treatment to people who look like me better than people who don't because I feel more comfortable with them. That's fine. You may not have a, have a white sheet or whatever, or whatever form of racism your people, whatever your people are, express, all of us. But the outgrowth is if I walk into a room and someone's going to give me less patience and less grace, I don't care what you call it, it ain't good. <laughs> I, I don't... <laughs> I had a lady come up to me, she said, and this, is, this story is in the book. I had a lady come to me, she said, she, said, um, she said, why can't you just get over it? I said, I said here's what I want you to do. And I, and I created this thing called um, the uh, walk in my shoes field trip. <laughs> I said, this is a white lady, I said, and she's a dear friend. I love, love her to death. She speaks, God speaks to her through me. Okay. You can not know these things and be a very nice person. But then you need to learn. <laughs> I said, why don't you go to a place where you are the only white person? Just for 10 minutes. Just try it. She's like, well, well, well. She did it. She did it. She did it. And I had, I had all these questions I want you to ask. I said, I want you to tell me how you felt when I asked you, how you felt when you were driving there, how you felt when you were there, how did people treat you, did, 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 did what you fear happened, did it happen, da da da, da. And, and I wrote all this stuff down. And she I asked, I asked six people, by the way, and two of them said no. And one guy went on 10 minutes why he wouldn't go and actually, and actually had him write a paragraph to put in the book to tell why he didn't want. He said, you know, if I, if I went to a black church, I would feel uncomfortable like I had to leave right away. That breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. And when, when, when people say, can't you get over it, I'm like, you have been living amidst your in-group. You flow in your in-group all day and night. You are getting preferential treatment over the out-group all day and night. So you don't understand what it means to have that not like me all, all, every day. 
I want you to flip the script in this room. Most of the people in this room are white. I want you to flip it. I want you to make sure, make believe that all the people who are in this room that are white are not white. And then all the people who are not white are white. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? And I wonder how many of you white people would come here. I wonder if you would have registered to come. Said, that, that's not my crowd. Why? We're here. We're, we're, we're walking in the midst of out group. <laughs> are y'all following what I'm saying? That, that you, have to, you have to in your mind, uh, you have to in your mind think, why, what, how does that make me feel? Why does it make me feel that way? Because that's where God can work. Does that make you a racist? Absolutely not necessarily. It just means, hey, I got, that's something I can learn. You can go today and go someplace and say, listen, and don't think, don't go automatically to, I got to go to danger zone. <laughs> God put his image in all kinds of shades and wonderful people. And, and because it's an outgroup, you may only have anecdotal information. And so you generalize and you see stuff on TV and someone told you this, but you have no personal experience. That's where relationship, <laughs> Pastor Chris talked about touch. Hey, I'll be right here after. Come touch me. <laughs> Come touch me. <laughs> in in, 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 in um, uh, Stephen Jones, Dr. Stephen Jones in San Diego, he wrote this article called The Right Hand of Privilege. This country was designed for right-handed people. Literally, most people are right-handed. I'm left-handed. So because I'm left-handed, I got to go to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who's left-handed? Amen? Amen. Okay. So, so you can't just go get golf clubs at any place. You got go to you gotta go to an extra store. You gotta, can't get, get a mint. When you're at school, it's right-handed desk. And you're like this. Are you following me? So you, you got you to gotta go through extra steps. I want you to imagine if you're in-group, just because made a right-handed culture. But you're left-handed. So you have to live in a right-handed culture. It's not, it's not the same. And so you're walking in a right-handed culture, and because you're right-handed, everything, what's the problem? All the right-handed people go, I don't see the problem, I don't see the problem. Everything fits, I can I buy everything. I don't know why. What are you talking about? What are you, what are you worried about? And then someone comes left-handed and says, I, I, I can't use that desk. I can't, I can't use that glove. I can't use those clubs. I can't, I can't find a store. i got to go on Amazon and order. We'll cover your it's too far. Four things I want to give you. Just to respect time, four things. Four things I want you to do. It, it, please put these down, write these down. Rename everybody you see as your brother and your sister. Why? Oh, oh. Listen, look, look what it says in, in, in Matthew chapter, God hit me with this. Matthew chapter 22, 37. You shall love your Lord the God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everyone say neighbor. First John 4, 20. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, say brother. brother. Say sister. sister. If you say you're a liar for he does not, how does he not love his brother, sister? Say brother, sister. Brother. Whom he has seen. But he can't, how can he love God who he has not seen? Now, the Bible says clearly you have to love your neighbor, your brother, as yourself. Can I get amen? amen. Number one commandment. If you can't do that, everything else is nullified. But what if they're not your brother? What if you rename them? Oh, wow. Oh, they're not like you. They're not, on, they're not like you. They're down here. When I used to watch, when I used to watch uh, Cowboys and Indian movies, they were always called the Indian savages. They weren't people. They were down here. Blacks were called animals. Down here. I mean, when they had a thing in Charlottesville, they were saying that. Down here. So if you're not, 
If you call someone an N-word or a white privilege <laughs> or an illegal or an Arab or whatever you call people, as soon as you do that, you give yourself permission not to love them. Oh, that's right. Because you just changed the identification. So therefore, I, I need to be your brother. Because the devil is the enemy, not me. And if you're my brother, if the devil's your, you're not my enemy, the devil is your enemy. Can I get an amen? Number two. Number two. Number two. Give in-group love to your out-group. Next time you're around people who don't look like you, and by the way, this applies to all kinds of stuff. It's just the Bible. Next time, all kinds. <laughs> Next time you're in a place and you see someone that's not like you, and by the way, they may be the only one not like you in the whole room. Think about the illustration about the ARC conference. If you were the only white person in this room. They had two guys arrested in Starbucks here. I'm sure you saw it. I don't need to go into the whole thing, but next time you go to Starbucks, listen, I don't know about Starbucks, the lady who called the cops. The owner came down, he spent three days, God bless that dude for coming down and the Philly and deal with it, God bless him. He got caught in the middle. He's now taking the brunt for some lady who called the cops because two brothers are sitting there waiting for a dude, right? Next time you're in a situation, Whatever the situation is, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, you may be the majority, minority and there's a one white person, one Hispanic person. Give them the same grace that you give your people. Wow. Think about that. Number three, <laughs> see my color. Stop saying you don't see color. <laughs> hey, hey. When you go out and get a tan, I go to Hawaii every year, I get a tan. Yes, we tan. I get a tan in Hawaii, and it looks really good. I go to tan, and, and I want you ladies, you get a tan, you're dating a guy, you want to date a guy, you get a tan, and you come to work, you spend five days in Hawaii getting your brown on, and then you come with your little spaghetti strap, and you walk around work saying, see my brown, see my brown. And for five days, the dude you're trying to get attention to says nothing about your tan. And you're like, is there, do you not see my tan? And he says to you, I don't see color. That ain't happening. <laughs> when you get a tan in Hawaii, it's beautiful. When you get a tan in the womb, it's criminalized. <laughs> when you get a tan in the womb, it's scary. It's inferior. I am not saying that all y'all think that. I'm saying this is the difference. When you say you don't see color, you are nullifying not only the color, but the burden that comes with the color. You're, you're nullifying the experience of being in the out group. And so if you, if you say, and when, people, when the first people said it to me, they said, I don't see your color. I was like, I, I really thought they didn't see red, green, brown. I was like, this, that's so sad. Everything's gray. I, I, I don't get it. I didn't understand. And they were like, no, 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 no. I, I don't see your color. And I was like, well, well, how do you know even to say that to me if you don't see it? So I, I'm, I'm confused. So then I said, well, what color am I? I mean, am I, did you make me like you? I want to be like me. And I want you to be like you. I was watching Sanford and Son. Sanford and Son. <laughs> Y'all know Sanford and Son? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> How many of y'all don't know Sanford and Son? You're probably young. You don't know Sanford. Okay, Sanford and Son, I want you to, how, I don't know how you could be old 
30 years old and not know who Reggie Fred G. Sanford is. <laughs> Fred G. Sanford. I just want you to... Okay, so Red Fox was a comedian, African-American comedian, and he was raunchy, and he was, he was just hilarious. But he had a show that was on TV, so it was relatively clean, and he was a junk man in South Central Los Angeles. And there were two cops always came to the house. One cop was black, one cop was white. And, and, and the black cop had to always interpret to the white cop what Fred was saying. It's hilarious. It's great. It's hilarious. And the white cop was very formal and he would talk straight and, and he would say, uh, so someone robbed Fred G. Sanford's house. And he said, um, uh, Fred, Mr. Sanford, was the perpetrator colored? And he goes, yeah, he was colored white. <laughs> the devil says you have two options. White people and people of color. God says, no, no, no. I made all y'all colored. Yes, sir. And I made all y'all colored to be beautiful. Everyone say, I am beautiful. beautiful. End of story. Wow. You white people are beautiful. You black people are beautiful. You brown people are beautiful. Everyone's beautiful. So that's it. Fourthly, give me your heart. And that when I say me, let's give each other our heart. Um, Rod Carew is a Panamanian baseball player. He's older, so a lot of y'all might not know him, but um, he was Panamanian. If you saw him on the street, you'd think he was black, so he was black Panamanian. He had a 328 batting average, 3,000 hits, 18-time All-Star, rookie of the year. He was the man. He was the man. And I grew up on Rod Carew. Uh, when he was 71, he had a heart attack, and he needed a heart and a kidney. At the time, there was a 27-year-old white tight end, NFL, played at Stanford, uh, named Conrad. And Conrad had, went into a coma. And Conrad, in the coma, his mother put her head on his chest. Says, baby, you're going to get up one day. I'm going to hear your heart again. Well, Conrad died. And right before Conrad died, he gave his body, his organs to be donated. And... Rod Carew got his heart. So Rod Carew calls Conrad's mother. Conrad's mother calls Rod Carew. You have my son's heart. Rod Carew says, do you want to come listen to your son's heart? He goes over the house. And she puts her chest on Rod Carew's chest. Here's her son's heart again. When Conrad was 11 years old, he met Rod Carew. And he came home and said, Mom, I'm going to be a professional athlete because I met my hero. How is it that a white man's heart can be in a Panamanian black man if we're so different? That's not, I'm going to end with the story. Let me end with the story. There was a guy who was hunting in the woods, and he saw this monster coming at him. And the monster was 100 yards away, and he was trying to get a good shot. And it kept getting closer and closer. It was behind a tree. It was behind a rock. It was behind a tree. It was behind a rock. And he said, I can't. This thing's going to kill me. I got to shoot it. I got to shoot it. And next thing you know, the monster was right here. And then he realized it wasn't a monster. It was his brother. There's no monsters in here. There are people who do bad things. And by the way, they look all kinds of shades. Okay? But we're not monsters. And when I say we, we God made us in his image so we can honor him, glorify him, love like him, encourage like him, speak life like him, yes. into himself and other people. Yes. 
And if we can understand and realize and see each other as brothers and sisters and that we are all one family, then God can bring this broken, fractured nation back together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. We honor you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all sell out. Y'all sell out. good, but it wasn't that good, okay? <laughs> Have a seat if you would. <laughs> it was good. We just needed to stop because we got some more things to do. H- how many of you, how do you think that would be worth maybe another 25 minutes of discussion on? If our panel could come up, if the panel could come up, if they would, and uh, let me explain a little bit about where this came out of. Um, after one of the police shootings, Um, several months ago, Dino called me and he said, I think we need to, we got to be talking about this. And so uh, Dino and John Siebling at the Life Church in Memphis uh, hosted just, there were probably 20 of us, I think, Dino, about equal people of color and, uh, well, we're all people of color, but you understand what I'm saying. And, uh, And we did it in Memphis because that's, where uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and really felt like it was, uh, that God wanted to say something to us there. And these are art people that we invited in. We invited uh, just, just several of his friends. And uh, we had a conversation where we just, hours together, just said, all we're gonna talk about is race, racial issues. Uh, I had a friend say to me afterwards, say, that's about the coolest thing I've ever heard from the ark. Well, let me tell you something, it was cool but that wasn't the word that I would define it at. There, there were several other words. One of them was enlightening. Enlightening, we as white people just sat for about two hours. And I, I said, why don't you guys tell us your experience of being black in America, and then I want you to tell us your experience of being black in the ark. It was enlightening. It was one of the most painful two hours I have sat through. We shed tears as we talked about the fact that brothers, friends, have hurt each other. Not somebody out there, us. We've hurt each other with racial insensitivity. Um, Another word I would say is uh, it left me hopeful that the church is the hope of the world. And if we do this right, gang, if we do this right, we can lead our nation back to a place of, or maybe not back to, but to, for the first time ever, to a place of honoring one another and caring for one another. And so, and so we're going to have a panel, and uh, let me just introduce our panel. We've got uh, Benny and Wendy Perez. 
And uh, they are... Uh, they, they, they are in uh, Las, Las Vegas and uh, doing a great church there. We've got Miles McPherson. You know who he is. We've got John Siebling, Life Church Memphis, who I think does this stuff about as well as anybody. We've got Stovall Weems, and uh, God has just really lit him up with a message. In fact, you've got a book, Stovall, called, let's see if I can get it right, coming out, called uh, Black Power, White Privilege, God's People. Is that right? White, white privilege, black power, God's people. It was better the way I said it, but it, yeah, okay. And it's going to be provocative and good. And then, and then we've got uh, George Davis at Impact Church in Jacksonville. And uh, you were in our meeting and had some incredible things to say. And then we've got Herbert and Tiffany Cooper, uh, who are in Oklahoma City and... Uh, uh, one of my good friends, and uh, just really some insight on the subject. So thank you for being here, and uh, I hope we push the envelope just a little bit. Is that okay? All right, so, so my first thing, you, you mentioned Starbucks. Starbucks is in trouble right now because two black guys came in, and um, they were waiting on a meeting, I guess, with a white guy, as I understand it. One of them needed to go to the bathroom. They hadn't bought anything. And they said, you can't use the bathroom because you hadn't purchased anything. And I was thinking, you know, they're probably the first people that ever needed to pee and uh, didn't buy something from the place they were at. Um, anybody, any testimonies here to that? You go into the, you stop at the McDonald's and go in the side door by the bathroom so that you don't have to. Okay. So, so... So Starbucks has said that May 29th, they're closing down all of their American stores uh, to do some training on um, uh, implied bias and unconscious bias. And here's my question. Where in the world are we going to buy coffee on May the 29th? <laughs> now, my question is this. I thought that'd be a lot funnier than it was, but it wasn't. Miles, you talked about it a little bit. And I'm not going to, I may ask some people, I want this more of a free flow if we can. But what, uh, how can I become more aware of the biased tendencies in my own life? Anybody want to? Miles, go ahead. Um, I would find a person that doesn't look like you and just ask them. Mm. You know, a lot of times we have relationships well, not a lot of times, the people that you hang out with, uh, you don't really know unless you ask about their pain um, and about their struggle, about their perception. People say things uh, that are offensive and we just kind of laugh it off, ha, 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 because it's like, well, that's just how they are. Uh, but I have very, very, very dear, dear friends that they're not bad, they're just ignorant. And in a sense, ignorant, not ignorant, they're educated, and all, but they just don't know, unaware. And so I would have a conversation, sit down with some people and say, am I biased? Do I have things I say that are offensive? And please hold me accountable. There's a whole chapter in my book called the Brother, My Brother's Keeper because I had a pastor on my staff who I was talking with because he was making comments and had to hold him accountable. And, and he said, yeah, I appreciate it because the pain he's had doesn't excuse it. So I would just, I would ask people just to, to tell you, and they will. You, you use a term in your book called white fragility. Which really, that kind of, what, what does that mean? 
white fragility is an academic term, and a lot of times people take very big offense to it, but Robin D'Angelo, who is an um, academic, uh, and her studies are, are whiteness, believe it or not. I didn't even know that was a study. Uh, <laughs> White History Month. I just thought, yeah, huh? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just thought that was education. But uh, uh, <laughs> hey, that's another subject, by the way. That's another subject. <laughs> because when you go look in a book and everybody looks like you is here and everybody looks like it, is, yep. that's an education of itself. So, yep. Yep. but I would say this. Uh, white fragility is the inability uh, for whites to handle racial stress. We deal with racism every day and conversations all the time. It's very comfortable. Um, but when you bring it up, it, it'll cause people to say, well, I don't see color or change the subject or I, I, I got a black friend. That's evidence of white fragility. <laughs> I have black people in my church, you know. Yeah, uh, right. uh, or, or I have white people in my church or I have Hispanic people in my church. And so it's like, I want to be, I, I don't want to talk about it, and we need to talk about it. Because that's, that's a thing right there. That causes us to push people away and not be intimate, not have that touch. Therefore, you can't honor, you can't love, you can't minister. Yeah. you got to be vulnerable. It's, it's a challenge. Anybody else uh, on that issue? I mean, I would say, you know, did it to what Miles said, but when we started our church, we started our church with a, a goal to be diverse, and the... Uh, we weren't in the beginning, and when we started um, getting more diverse, I befriended uh, a, a black guy that I said, you know, school me, educate me, and talk to me about your life, and talk to me about what you see in our church, and we started to have lunch once a month, and, you know, he helped, he helped me understand my uh, illustrations that I was using, and the different things that I was, and it totally reframed my mind. I had the heart for it, but I didn't have the understanding of it. And so it totally helped me create an environment where, uh, you know, people of all color felt accepted. So let's talk to the, uh, maybe Stovall, you want to hit this one. Why does racism matter to me if I'm not a person of color? Should it matter? Why? How do, how do you deal with that? So, um, uh, you know, I think that all of this goes to just the the deepest core message of the cross, and uh, and that's reconciliation. And so I think a lot of times, as as pastors and as followers of of Jesus, you know, we think of reconciliation in the vertical. You know that Jesus came to reconcile us with God, and He did. But that reconciliation was as much horizontal as it was vertical. And, um, you know, so when he shed his blood and his body was broken for us, um, the core message of the cross is reconciliation with our fellow man um, of all races, colors, and creeds. And, and, and I'd like to remind everyone, you know, every time that you take communion and you take that bread where Jesus said, this is my body that was broken for you. So a lot of times we think of that in terms of like, okay, you know, his body was broken for me, so, I, so my body can be healed. And, and that is true. However, the bigger context is his body was broken for us so that his body could be whole. The body of Christ should be whole. So, so when, you, when you take that, when you take that bread, you, if you, you are reaffirming your covenant 
with Jesus and the whole body that we we have no we just have no right to have any opinion or judgment or anything else about our fellow man. Jesus' prayer was that we should be one. The world will know us by our love for one another. What Chris was talking about, right? The fount the foundations on Hebrews 6, 1 through 4, repentance from dead works. Dead works means this. When we repent from dead works, we mean we no longer can have our own opinions, our own ideas. It's, it's what God says. It's his ideas. We, we, we are one. And when I love what Miles said about, about putting the right name on your, your, your brother because the first one to, 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 to reduce that was Cain. Mm-hmm. You know, and and God says, "Where where is your brother?" And Cain said, is, "Am I my brother's keeper?" That was the first disconnect from our original family, Adam and Eve. And when we have that attitude, "Am I my brother's keeper?" We're agreeing with the confession of Cain. And okay. uh, so, yeah, good. How about um, why does it matter to me racism? Why does it matter to me? If I'm a person of color, what, um, George, you want to tackle that a little bit? Well, I think, I think number one is because, uh, it's something that, as Miles said, it's in our face every single day. Um, and that's, and, and it's not a, a, a negative thing, but I mean, in, in America, um, almost everywhere you go, uh, as he said, in this room right here, you look around and there's a, a small percentage of people of color. Uh, and again, one of the things that, that came out at our meeting in Memphis that just you know, blew the lid off was, you know, Benny brought out, hey, when, when we think of racism, let's not just think in terms of black and white. Yep. You know, because it goes so much further than just black and white. And, right. and, and, and certainly you know that intellectually, but it, it really went to the core for me. And it, it changed my whole perspective on not just thinking that this is a black and white issue. It's black, white, Hispanic, it's Asian, it's Indian. And I think the thing that, you know, for us that we recognize is, as, as Stovall said, in John 17, it was Jesus that said that his prayer was that we would all be one. And I think, you know, I mean, such a marvelous message that Miles gave us. But I think one of the things that we should walk out of here with is just be extremely encouraged because this is an opportunity. Because yeah. mm-hmm. this, this is not a church problem. It is a world problem. It is. And so if the church can get it right, then mm-hmm. we get a chance to be that salt. We get a chance to be that light. We get a chance to show the world, because the world on their own, the world on their own cannot catch this. Yeah. But if the church catches it, and we demonstrate that our churches are not black churches and white churches, we are the body of Christ, hey. then the world gets a chance to look at us and say, wow, there's something that they have that we cannot get on our own. Yeah. And so whether you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, you know, the whole issue of racism is something that affects every one of us, whether you personally have felt it or not. It's something that affects all of us, and it's something that we ought to all put high on our list to make sure that we are part of the solution and not the problem. That's good. That's good. Let's come down to Benny. Benny, will you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, when we were in that meeting, Greg, um, I sat there, and it was, it was all black, white, black, white, black, white. Then I said... Do you know that the largest ethnic group in America is Hispanic? And I'm just speaking as Hispanic Latino, that we have kind of like been the silent majority. And implicitly, it's like, you know, well, Benny, you know, you're not a person of color. No, I am. 
And there are a lot of Hispanics in here. I had two young Hispanic leaders come up to me and start talking to me about their struggle, 20-some years old, in their environment. I begin to think about it, and I, I begin to think that when the flood, you know, kind of destroyed everything, and then what does God do? God says, I'm going to give a covenant sign. And the covenant sign was a rainbow, mm-hmm. a multicolored rainbow mm-hmm. saying that this is going to be my sign that I will never destroy the earth again. So if God says, I want to put a rainbow out there that has multicolors, I think the, shirt, the church should be that rainbow to the world saying, this is the covenant that God made with us. Come on, can we make it with each other? And in that, have a beautiful display of Hispanic, African-American, come on, Asian, Native American. And, and, and we've brought in the conversation. When you do that, it's amazing how people gravitate towards you. I mean, you know, people go, how's your church diverse? Well, I married a white girl. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I joke about that. But from the very beginning of our church, we've been racially diverse from the very beginning. Because I think diversity can't just be up here. You got to own it in here. It's a spirit of who you are. That's right. And so, you know, I I speak for the Hispanics here. You know, we're part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And we want to be part of the solution also. Let let me ask the best preacher at the conference so far, who I would say is Wendy. Uh, (laughs) goodness. You heard a mama perspective yesterday, and it was powerful. How does, how have you watched racism impact, Benny, maybe even your kids, or what, what, what can you say about that? Um, we talk a lot about it in our house. I think what God has done as a miracle in our church, which is it being so diverse, we are now very intentional about maintaining that and really empowering all different races in our mm-hmm. church. But yeah, our, our kids, we talk about it all the time. BJ was going to a friend's house. They happened to live in a country club. And he drove up to the gate and he gave them um, the address and the people that he was going to see. And um, yeah, two Hispanic kids in the car. And they asked if he was going to go do their landscaping or mm. was he working at the house. And of mm. course, he's a kid. So he thought it was absolutely hilarious and couldn't wait to, you know, call me and tell me. But... <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's just having the open conversations. I think that's what it is. And Mm -hmm. I have learned so much. And I think what Miles said this morning was so powerful because I, I, I've been in LA and then I've been the only white person in the target and they're talking about me in Spanish, but I understand. (laughs) (laughs) I know what Weta means. So, you know, I'm like, I can hear you (laughs) anyway, but it's good. Mm. I think every, every white person should do that. I'm just going to speak to the white people. Yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> I'll tell you, um, Herbert, uh, I want you and Tiffany uh, here, here in just a second. But when, it, oh, when, when my eyes were opened up uh, and I don't get it right and, uh, and uh, uh, I'm committed to conversation and getting it right. But uh, when um, 
uh, a white policeman shot a black man seven times uh, right by our dream center, and it was on television. Uh, and it was just crazy. We didn't know if our city was going to explode. I called the director of the Dream Center and I said, bring some white folks, some black folks, whoever you can in the neighborhood to my office because we're going to talk. And I asked about the, what's it like to be black in America. And it, it, my eyes totally opened up at that point. What, what I want to say is, okay, I have sons. You have sons. How is the experience of your sons different than mine? You know, I think that um, several years ago when the racial tension in America started to simmer above the surface, um, as a white mother, that was the first time that I actually took a step back and thought about what will this be like for my sons when they leave the safe bubble that they're in right now um, and we have um, one teenager now, and soon to be a second teenager, and it opened my eyes to the conversations that I am going to have to have with them that I didn't grow up having, my brother didn't grow up having, um, about how they may be perceived by people who don't know them. Um, and I would say also, on behalf of the white population, um, as a side note, I grew up in a Christian home with parents who have great love for people. And I was raised to believe that all people are created equal by God. And I was very naive. And I remember going to college and thinking, because I grew up in a small white community, that the civil rights movement really had dissolved racism. I was very naive, very ignorant. And my freshman year of college, when I met Herbert, the moment that we became official as boyfriend-girlfriend dating my eyes became so open to what racism really is in America. And the comments that were made to me, the treatment, um, the way that Herbert um, has to live daily each day um, among people. It just, my eyes were completely open and I was blown away. And so I do, I think that with um, raising children who are biracial, there are things that I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would have to discuss with them. Um, and teaching them, going even a step further on how to conduct themselves and what to say and how they might be perceived. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll say that too. I will say that um, even as a mother of biracial children, um, the way that I'm treated in stores, the way that people look at me, mm. um, it is very obvious, and it's not said in words, but it is with the looks, it is with um, the disregard, um, and, you know, I have dreaded the day that my kids will become aware, um, because when they're young, they're so oblivious, and um, now that we're at an age where um, when we're in situations, um, I think to myself, okay, are they sensing that? Are they feeling that now? And is this going to have to be a conversation after we leave this place? Um, so it is absolutely, um, and that's what I'll say. It's rarely with words, but it is with how I'm treated differently than if I'm just by myself walking into a situation. So, Herbert, talk, let's not assume that we all know exactly what the experience of a black man in America uh, is like what what's what's different what, with your kids with, with you 
Yeah, you know, I would just, I think a good illustration of just like a dynamic or I think the word white privilege came up, right? And that can be offensive. And so I was actually having a conversation with my, my father-in-law in Nebraska. And he's like, man, what are you talking about? I worked hard to get where I am. Mm-hmm. You're talking about white privilege. You know, what are you talking about, Herbert? So let me explain it to you like this, Tim. I said, um, when I started dating Tiffany, um, we received a letter from one of your relatives that we, all, we love uh, that said, uh, that we should not be dating because of the color of my skin. And uh, as I came to the house and interacting with the family, I, I actually had to win over the family uh, so that I could marry Tiffany. And the only mark against me, I, I was educated. Uh, I, was, I was working. I could provide. So... So I, because of the color of my skin, I actually had to work harder mm. to be able to earn the right amongst the family that mm. I was deserving to marry Tiffany. Mm-hmm. So there was a privilege. There was something that I didn't have the privilege of because of the color of my skin. But that, could, that also translates in sometimes when I go to the bank or mm. if I'm in a restaurant or a, just because of the color of my skin... I don't receive the same treatment, not because I'm not kind or nice or educated or just because of the color of my skin. Those are just realities just in everyday life. What do you teach your sons about if they get stopped in a car? Anything different than what I would? Yes. Okay. If I get stopped in a car, I think about my insurance is going to be out and I don't want to reach in my glove compartment because her brother's trying to live somebody, amen. And so those are just realities that I just know depending on who stops me in the time of day or the neighborhood we live in, uh, you know, yeah. uh, it's, I've got to be aware of how I'm, how I'm going to be treated. Say again. Ten and two on the, on the steering wheel. Yeah, yes. ten and two on ten the and steering two. wheel. Yes, ex- exactly right. I'm holding it tight and I'm not moving. Oh, I've got like 12 questions, and we've done two. Uh, you, guys, you guys are doing a diversity panel, I think, or did? Workshop. We have two workshops today, uh, app sessions. The first one's in the chapel, and the second one, it's, in, it's on your bulletin, and, and we're going to do a teaching. They're both the same. I'm going to do a teaching more on this, and then we're going to do a Q&A. Okay, good. So if you want to uh, learn more and do more, love to talk about how we can be more diverse as churches, that type thing. Stovall, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to say one thing. That, that panel will be a great, uh, it'll be a great environment for um, us white people to, to understand that was a great explanation of, of, of white privilege because a lot of times white people think, well, that, that means I'm not working hard. No, no, in, in my book, I have a great example of how my grandfather, World War II vet, my father, it's white privilege is the head start that we have and that Miles' great uh, illustration about the, our society is created for right-handed people. Come on, I'm left-handed too, by the way. Come on, right here, and, uh, right here. Bring her to left-handed. <laughs> but I want to say this real quick. Watch this. Watch this. White, white privilege and black power. Listen, listen. As God's people, we are all privileged, and we are all empowered as God's people. We all have the favor of God, and we all have the power of the Holy Spirit. Watch. 
no one was more privileged and empowered than Jesus. The difference is Jesus used his privilege and his, po- and his power to lift up those who were oppressed and those who were marginalized and those who didn't. And as the church, that's our job too. Let's use the privilege and the power that God gives up, gives us to show the love of Jesus and lift up those that are being oppressed so and marginalized. Yeah. Listen, we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. Let, let, let me just challenge you with one thing that's helped me, and I'm not there yet. These guys will tell you that. I still say stupid stuff, but they're my friends, and they help me through it. But you know what? I've made a, a, uh, a habit of uh, going to lunch with about once a month with somebody, and I, I do it with different ones, who look different than me and who vote differently in the in the, uh, in the elections. I hate elections. Elections divide our churches. But, but I, I, I go, and, and I go to listen, to say, okay, tell me what I'm not seeing. Tell me what, tell me what I don't know. And uh, it's, it's, it opens up. In fact, I think that's where the solution is, is through the relationships as we do that. Yeah. George, would, would you pray for us uh, and pray for our country? Father, we're so grateful for the privilege to be a part of this amazing body of Christ. Thank you that the, the blood of Jesus was shed for all of us. And we thank you for the revelation that you're given to us in these end times, that we're able to be a light to the world and salt to, to help others to see that there is a solution, and the solution is not in politics. The solution is not in uh, just the, the civil process alone, but the solution is in the body of Christ coming together to recognize what we need to see differently, Father. We thank you for on every side of this coin that each of us is able to look inwardly first, to not uh, be defensive about it, but to put our trust in you, that you are well able to help transform our hearts and allow us to come closer together, allow us to, to have the courage to get out of our comfort zones, to stretch past what is what's comfortable for us to get to the out group so that we can see what we're not currently seeing. I thank you for the rest of my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and I thank you for helping us to be the salt and light that the world needs to see. We thank you that Jesus Christ is still the hope of the entire world, and we as the body of Christ have the glorious privilege to demonstrate to the world what real love looks like that can only come from the heart of our Father God. So we thank you for it. Thank you for the app sessions today and all the the grace and all the wisdom that will come forth from them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And let's stop getting our theology on race relations from Fox News and CNN and start getting it from God's Word. Amen. Thank you very much, panel. We're so grateful. And Stovall, too, for your additional um, instruction right there. Yeah. And I'd like to point out that I think three of the last four presidents were left-handed. And so you just overcome stuff, and you just start out a little smarter is all. And so, (laughs) yeah. Listen, uh, as we transition uh, to what's next, which is super exciting, and I can't wait. Let, Let me just say this to you. I woke up this morning, and I got a notification on my phone that it was Billy Hornsby's birthday. Uh, Wow. Billy was our founder. He would have been 69 years old today. And as I looked at that, then I came and I looked out at this crowd. Uh, I'll never forget, Chris, the last words he said to me, and probably 
you too, was don't ever forget about the little guy. Don't ever forget about the little guy. And here's the truth. In God's eyes, we're all the little guy. And um, I, th- I think Billy would be proud of you. And uh, I-, I just want to invite you, uh, all of us, to just be a part of this family. Uh, we, we, we've been talking about family just a little bit. And I think that in future years, our family is going to reflect even more about what our communities are about and, and who we are. And I think so as an ARC family too. And I am so proud to be a part of it. But I want to invite you to be a part. I want to be, uh, invite you to be a part. There's not an insiders group. We're all, we're all there. And uh, so uh, just, just uh, uh, we'll give you some information a little bit later on how you can actually uh, be- become a part of the family. But uh, just want to take a minute, honor Billy and uh, say that uh, we, we love you and we're honored to be a part of what's going on. We have a video of one of our church plants, so I want you to take a look at this. I was a youth pastor near this area in South Richmond. We were busting in kids left and right from this particular area to our youth ministry. I remember one night after youth ministry, we were dropping the kids off the bus. One of the people said, hey, can my mom come to church? I said, hey, we don't run a bus on Sundays. Well, she asked, uh, well, could you guys have church here? And for me, that started an internal conversation about why is there no church here? We started to pray and and God began to give us that burden and say, man, this is the place where you need to start a life-giving church. Richmond is a very broken area. Richmond was a capital of the Confederacy. It's a very racially divided area. And it was our heart and our dream, God, would we be able to have a church that is diverse with African-Americans and Caucasians and Hispanics worshiping God and becoming family in one place. I thought that launching a church is meant starting a Bible study in your garage for the first year. I had no idea that we could start big early on in our process. We realized the cost of launching a life-giving church in this particular area is very expensive. ARC has made this process of launching a church really simple. Literally, they give you a play and you gotta work it. I had no idea how to raise money. I had no idea what that would look like, but literally we just ran the play and we were able to raise close to $347,000 before we launched. And secondly, they gave us a large amount of money upfront, $50,000 so they can go part of our launch budget so we can launch as big and as strong as possible. Lastly, they helped us out with our financial training. They have taught me, hey, this is how you have a budget. This is how you plan out things. This is what you should spend money on. This is what you kind of should hold off on. We had settled on this small community center that set about maybe 125 people. I remember one of my art coaches, he told me, he said, Travis, you need to dream bigger. You need to pray bigger. He told me to triple my budget, triple my idea of having a launch team. And he's been a coach that's walked with me through this entire process. January 21st, the end of our 21 days of prayer and fasting, the opportunity for this large 15,000 square foot facility came. ARC is the place where my vision was stretched. Just being around all the people, I mean, all the coaches, all the lead team, and just investing in me, that has been the thing that has attracted me most to ARC is the people of ARC. Our launch service was amazing. Our team worked so hard to make sure that we have a life-giving, safe, clean, fun environment for our kids and our adults as well. I just want to say thank you to ARC. ARC has been such a huge piece of our story. Without ARC, our vision would have been small. We probably wouldn't have been trained well. We probably would have not been connected well with great people who are heroes of our faith. And so I am so grateful for ARC.
And because of their encouragement, we were able to reach my city for Jesus and really be a huge supporter and champion of ARC and making sure that more life-giving churches are planted through the ARC. Come on, let's clap our hands. More life-giving churches. More life-giving churches. Exactly what we just talked about. Hey, can we clap our hands for the panel and for Pastor Miles, Pastor Greg Surratt, and fantastic. And it's always good to have a fired-up Stovall Weems on stage. It's his birthday today, so he's special fired up. Come on, 31 years old again. Bring it back again. And so... What a great conference we've had, and, and I'm just thrilled about what the, the rest of this day is going to be, as well as tonight. I know tonight we'll receive our offering for church planning. We'll get to hear from Pastor Brian. John Gray's going to be on in a little bit. Uh, but I, I'm, I've been looking forward to this next session, uh, probably excited about it, uh, just thrilled. But we've had, we've had a great time. How about DJ Peter Haas last night? Come on, after party. We call him DJ Peter Haas. And the Golden Gophers up there doing a little hip-hop. And so that was fantastic. And just a lot of neat things uh, that are going on. Uh, uh, Pastor Chris and I were talking earlier about just what God has done throughout ARC. And our founder, Billy Hornsby, had a heart for this to happen. And, and, and today, uh, if Billy Hornsby, of course, he's in heaven, uh, was alive, he'd be 69 years old today. And so that's an amazing thing. Can we clap our hands, Tammy? I know we honor your family and your dad and your mom. And we would not be here now if it wasn't for your dad. And so we honor you and just thank God. We, we think about Billy Hornsby every day at ARC. And there's not a time we don't get together and we don't talk about him. Greg and I just laugh about the stories. And, and we think so much of how it reflects uh, what God is doing. And, and we've met so many friends. I know it's been great. I, I love being here because you just get to see friends and, and family. You don't want to be, you, you don't want to stop. Last night we had to run some of y'all off, had to call the police, get some of y'all back out of here because you just want to stay around. And so we've got a lot of different friends uh, that are here with us and love being together. And one of the friends that uh, Chris talked about last night uh, was Wesleyan Investment Foundation. And I'm just telling you right now, I, I, I wanted you to, I, I wanted to introduce you. It was, it was my idea to one of our friends. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've gotten to know Craig Dunn, uh, who's the president of Wesley Investment Foundation. I don't know if you ever get around someone and you just think, man, we, we, in, in one hour, you're like, we're best friends and, 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 and we, we're going to do life together. It was quick like that, really feel covenant together. And it's an amazing thing when you sit down with a, with a banker and, and they ask you, what do you need? Come on, somebody. And, and, and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, am I being punked right now? Is there, is there a camera somewhere right now? And you you're getting ready to psych me out and arrest me. What's going on? And so it's just been an amazing relationship. But I wanted Craig to come out. Can we clap our hands for the president of Wesley Investment Foundation? Come on, Craig. Dunn. Come on, show your love, Ark. One of the biggest investors in the church planning. I just wanted him to greet you. Because, you know, when you're family, you're like introducing other family to other family. And can you just greet? It was my idea. I wanted you to greet Ark because you mean so much to you. You're doing so much for church planning. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege for us to be here. And uh, Pastor Dino, it does feel like we've come home. Uh, our, our paths have uh, gone parallel tracks. We've been around a little bit longer than Ark. Uh, 72 years in existence helping churches, and that's all we do. And, and how we do that is we take savings accounts that people open up savings accounts with us, churches and individuals, and we take that money and make loans to churches. But I'll tell you what, I can't 
I can't tell you how good it feels to be with ARC now. And WIF and ARC are in sincere, real partnership, and we want it to stay that way for a long time, and it feels like we're, we're home, and if you're not part of ARC, you're here checking it out, this is home. Yeah. Come, come on home. All I of love it. it. So, so 72 more years, we're in this thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just, I just wanted to say something that uh, God just put on my heart this morning. Um, and I was, I was thinking about the services last night and everything that was going on yesterday. We're, we're so in this with, with ARC. And we were created for church planting. That's why we started 72 years ago. Churches couldn't get loans from banks. And so WIF was started to make loans to those young, struggling church plants. And that's why we still exist, and that's why I feel like this is just a natural partnership. And uh, Pastor Chris said something last night. Uh, he used the word almost when it was about WIF and our, our uh, help to the ARC organization. He said we almost made it to seven figures in our, in our help to ARC this year. Pastor Chris, we're committing. We're going to do that seven figures this year for ARC. Wow, that's amazing. Hey, let's clap our hands. Wow, that's amazing. Man, that's big. That's, that's, that's incredible. Everybody needs a seven-figure brother. Come on, somebody. You got to have a seven-figure friend. And so, thank God for that. And what's amazing is because of the way, many of you know this, the way that our finances work here, because of the leadership takes care of the overhead, then all those additional dollars goes into us directly planting more churches, helping in communities. There are cities right now that we've got targeted, that we really want to go into, that the cost per plant is even more. And so it lets us be more creative. And so just thank God for that. That's, I had no idea that was going to happen. They've already given so much. And so uh, that's amazing. One other thing before uh, we get to hear from our, our, our speaker is uh, many of you know, and this is something that's dear to my heart, and that is Serve Day. Serve Day is on July the 14th. And many of you do Serve Day or Love Week or you get in your community. We know as just in the last panel how important it is that we're engaging in our community and we're out in our community. So it's July the 14th. Uh, this year, 2018, and we are thrilled about this. So this is something that has just happened. I want to announce it here uh, at the conference because uh, it is really going to revolutionize outreach and engaging our community for the cause of Christ. And so in a few weeks, we're going to be rolling out a serve day platform for you. It's going to be free. Thank God for Church of the Highlands, Pastor Chris, who have they invested a, a lot of money in being able to create a platform that's going to make outreach so much easier. It's going to help our people be connected to the those, those things that they have a heart to do on those days where we're trying to put hundreds of people and thousands of people. It's literally like an Uber for serve day. They'll be able to get up in the morning and see where the projects are, and then we'll be able to see that they're populated. And if you were going to a, a, a home where we were going to work on the yard of a widow, you can see that that is populated, and then you can move to another closer outreach. I, I'm telling you, I've been around outreach a long time. It's our passion to serve, serve solution. But this is going to change the game for an 
encountering and engaging our community with the love of Jesus and reaching into some areas. So we're thrilled about that. And what you could do is, is we've been able uh, this year, we've always had a lot of different websites and a lot of different uh, URLs, but this year we've been able to, to secure through the gracious gift and also through a church, surveyday.com. So everything is going to go to surveyday.com. It's so much easier to do that. It was a big win to get that website, to get that domain. So you can download all that and you can sign up with your phones and just watch in a few weeks. This Serve Day platform is going to launch. I really believe it's going to change things. I know here at Highlands, we'll probably put 25, 30,000 people on the street just that day. And this is going to help us to stay coordinated. Your leaders can know what's going on. They can kind of know who's coming to the event. Where do we need to offload others to an event? And uh, it's going to be a, a, a game changer. Can we thank Church of the Highlands, Pastor Chris, for helping us to do this? It's going to really revolutionize reaching people. And here's the thing. It's free. And the last thing, and you can just white label it. It could be yours. So it's not going to look like a Highlands. It's not going to be a Highlands thing. It's not going to be a survey. It's going to be your thing. So you just put your cover on it, and then people are going to your outreach, and then you're able to, to, to extract that data, and then you can get up in front of the church and say, hey, yesterday we had 1,000 people, and we served literally 80,000 hours because you're going to be able to get that data and to celebrate what God is doing. So it's customized for every church, and it's for free. And, uh, and so just amazing, amazing, awesome things uh, that are happening. Uh, I am so thrilled about being able to have Carl Lentz with us. Uh, talking to Carl and, 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 you know, Carl, come preach, come preach, and just talking to, to him and, and his heart for church planters, his heart for the church, his heart for the kingdom. Uh, he said, how can I help you best? And, and why don't we just talk a little bit and kind of stay around what is important. Of course, he's one of the most dynamic communicators. He's dear to, to our home. I know he feels like family here at Ark, feels like family to Delenn and I, and we love his family. Hey, why don't you stand to your feet and let's welcome Carl Lentz. Come on, Hillsong, New York. Come on, clap your hands for Carl Lentz. Show your love. Wow, Pastor Carl, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I mean, that's just awesome, and uh, everybody's been looking forward to hearing from you. And I want to say again, uh, when we were talking, you're, you, I mean, you're one of the greatest communicators on the planet. God has gifted you incredibly. Uh, but you said to me, how can I best help ARC? How can I best help people, those that are planning churches? You said, why don't we have a conversation? And, and let me just share my heart with what God is doing in the world today, what you're learning there in New York and uh, in, the, in the family that you're in. And uh, we just love you. So, so tell us what's going on. Give us an update. Just, uh, you know, thanks for being here. I mean, my goodness gracious, you just, you got, you got, you're looking good. You're always looking clean. Uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord, can I dress like Carl Lentz? I, uh, is this on? Okay. It, it's just such an honor to be here, and, and I'm grateful, I think, um, you know, when you are, are in environments like this, I'm just, I'm so excited to learn and to probably more aptly steal ideas, especially from Mark. Anybody ever stole an idea from anybody in this room? Okay. Uh, I just, I feel like um, I have no problem being 39, you know, and been, I haven't been doing this for that long. And a huge shout out to my pastor, Brian Houston, who's here. So it's really awkward to be up here right now uh, trying to say everything right. But I, I think it's one thing to preach. And that's when you feel like you have something to say. 
but I feel like in this environment where there are so many men and women who have done this better and longer than me, uh, I can get in less trouble if you ask me questions. And if you <laughs> preach, that's me telling I mean, what I feel like is on my heart. But I do feel like in this environment, um, because there's so many people in here, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to reach cities. And um, all, all I can share from is my, my experience. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I, I just, I'm kind of overwhelmed by that last succession of things we had. Pastor Miles, just unbelievable. Um, thanks for kind of keeping it low-key and really hiding what you think. Yeah. I love that, you know, people just say it like it is in this panel. It's just, uh, it's just an incredible thing. I'm glad my daughter's here with me, Charlie Jane Lentz, down the front. And uh, I just, I, I'm, I'm thinking about her hearing this at this time, at this kind of conference, and I'm just so hopeful right now. If I had to describe how I feel as a fellow church uh, you know, pastor, planter, um, there's no better time to be doing this than right now. This is our time. This is the time for the local church to be as loud and as passionate as we can be. I mean, it's, a, it's just incredible because, I mean, New York City, it is a, I mean, everything, it, it goes through and comes through. And y'all have really worked hard and you've been a voice along with Miles and some others that were here about how we're, we're dealing with racism, how we're dealing with reaching people. Uh, tell us, I mean, give, it, give, it, give us a moment on how have you walked through that? Because you love people. And that's one of the things I've known about you all these years. You love humanity for the cause of Christ. So tell us how, you, how you've walked through that. I think uh, we're just, we're nowhere near where we should be or need to be, but we're not where we used to be. That's how I feel about where, where our church is at. But being in New York... Um, we didn't have any choice to deal with this. I know a lot of people have said things to us like you guys are, are brave and some people have even commended us. And I always think, I, I think we're so far behind where we need to be. We didn't have any choice in New York. Eric Garner was killed basically on our doorstep. And I remember waking up going, you know, we have to, we have to deal with this in our church. And just by addressing it, I do feel like that's sadly a step in America. And I think for me, I don't know who talked about a meeting uh, could have been Pastor Greg, but I, I had the same type of meeting where we just gathered uh, a bunch of people that are not white at Hillsong Church. And I just sat there in a room, and it was probably the, the hardest meeting I've ever been in and, uh, and the most alarming one, but also the most freeing. I said, I'm just going to listen. I want you all to talk. What's it like to be black in New York right now? Um, what's it like to be a minority? What's it like to be a, a non-white person in Hillsong Church, New York City? And I knew we had work to do, but I left there going... Um, this is far worse than I thought, and we have some serious work to do. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, we had a like kind of like a town hall meeting where we just got together as a church, and we just started talking about stuff. And I got a couple people up to speak. Um, there are three founders of Black Lives Matter. Uh, one is a young woman who's been a part of our church for five years, so I used to catch a lot of flack for that comment. They're like, you don't know what you're talking about when you say Black Lives Matter. I'm like, I kind of do. One of the founders is my friend. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, but it's fine. Uh, and, and I remember that night, it was, our point was, if we cannot get along in here, we are kidding ourselves if we think we're going to get out here on these streets and win. And I said, uh, I mean, we did everything that we don't normally do in New York City. Like, you know, sometimes you hold hands in church. That's not happening in New York. Uh, but we, we held hands and we prayed. And uh, I challenged some of the non-white people. I said, what we're going to do is we're going to pretty much demand if you're a white person in our church, you're going to go find somebody who doesn't look like you. And you're going to get to know each other. And when they ask stupid questions, you can't then get mad because that defeats the purpose. And um, I thought that we were doing good. 
And then I got, started getting some emails. And I just thought, man, this is so much worse than I thought. I had people say, you know, I had like um, a couple of black men, a couple of black women up there. And then I had someone say, you know, you didn't have any light skin representation. And then another person came up and had a meeting. They're like, um, you had a, a black man up there who was married to a white woman. I remember sitting there going, another person said, um, you know, I, I feel like this, this wasn't represented. Then a woman came up and she said, I'm Native American. When are you going to show love to me? And I, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to quit. And I'm going to leave. Because I'm trying, you know, and I just remember thinking, um, thank God I'm not the answer. Thank God Jesus is. I know him. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, you know, try not to quit. Um, I'm going to call Pastor Chris Hodges and try to get five systems that are guaranteed to work. <laughs> and then I'm going to play Robert Morris's tithing message. Um, and then I'm going to ask John Gray if he can come in and speak. And that should set us on the right course. But I just, uh, I, I, feel like, I feel like the days are over where we can get away with just acting like this isn't real. And someone said to me, they said, yeah, you're not going to do the whole racism thing again, are you? I mean, we get it. Someone said that to me in my church. Hey, we get it. You're the racism guy. And I went, that's the weirdest thing any, anybody's ever said to me. And I said... You, this isn't about racism. This is about sin. And we're in a, we're in a society right now where if we're, if we're, we're going to be held accountable for what we talked about from behind these pulpits. And we're going to be held accountable for what we did with the roles that God gave us. And I'll tell you one thing. Um, I wore a suit so I wouldn't do this. Um, trying to be professional. Uh, I think there's, uh, it's just, shoot. I'm okay with fighting these fights. You know, I don't want to just have a, um, you know, a church that's, that's cool or doing good. I want to be, um, you know, a part of something that's, uh, that's going to the heart of the issue. And I think um, there's, there's so much we can do that I think God's using this moment. This isn't about black and white stuff. This is about the need for Jesus. And I think it's a vehicle in our culture right now for people to start going, wow, there are no answers for this outside of Jesus because people are bad. Racism is real. This is stuff that's so deep where our little behavior modification programs aren't going to cut it. Our racial reconciliation things aren't going to cut it. You know what changes culture is the Holy Spirit. And you start opening that up, now we start to see things change. And that's the only way I can even explain what, what's happening in New York. Um, and I'm just grateful that I have a pastor who, um, he, you know, hesitantly trusts me at times. But he, he just always supports. And he says, you know, you, you have a read on what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to back you 100%. And uh, it's been, and I'm just faced with, I've got friends who are white, and I'm white. And I remember telling somebody, and I did, I did have a chance to write a book, and I put some things in there just to kind of quell some bad rumors and just to give some clarity some, to some stuff that we've been a part of. But I said one night at my house, I had a friend named PJ who's not white, a friend named John who is white, and they left my house uh, at the same time. And I said to uh, John, I was like, hey, see you tomorrow. And I said to PJ, call me when you get home. And I thought, wow, I wonder, these are grown men. The only, the only difference is PJ's black. And I thought, I want to be a part of a culture 
that we can look back, my daughter's here today, where we, we, we were at least part of the conversation being opened up where we refused to let this stand. And I look around today and I see a lot of people who, who are about that same thing. And I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. Yeah. Sorry for getting weird. Oh, it's the no, worst. It, it's, you know, I always think, no, no. I always think yeah, the body of Christ, I, I think, is, is so much better because of your voice. And I think a lot of that stems, of course, from your pastor. I think about how Hillsong, Pastor Brian and Bobby, how they have, I mean, literally shaped the body of Christ today. I know what an honor it is. But I thought about this. I, first, I met you years and years ago. I mean, you were, I think, doing youth ministry. and We showed up at a youth conference, and, and uh, that's when you kind of had that long, wet look, which was kind of cool. And... Uh, and um, I mean, it was cool at that, at that moment. You were owning the moment. And, uh, and so... There is more. There, there is, is more. more. There is more. There is more. There is. We'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep going on to these Daniel dilemmas. And, uh, and so... But listen, and here's the thing I remember. Uh, two things I remembered is when... when it's a purpose-driven conversation. Yes, it is. <laughs> It'll never end. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember didn't finish chapter one. Go, preach. There we go. Go. Yeah. And I remember, watch, you communicated that night. Two things happened. One is, for, I, I, didn't, I, I barely knew you. And this hasn't happened much in my life. Uh, and, and I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you need to pray, pray for him every day. Because I'm raising him up to reach lost people. And so for about 14 years, I have a card in my Bible. And I have about, probably about nine names on it. And you're one of those names, you and your family. Um, and then I watched you communicate to lost people. And uh, because I just love you. I, you know, the, Jacob Aranza taught me you, you can't love anyone better than how you love them through their kids. And uh, you have loved my son. And, and, I've, and I've put my son there in, in the Hillsong world. And, and y'all graciously, and Dylan is here, and the way you love him. But, I mean... You love people. And when you gave that altar call that night, you just, the way you reach lost people, you are gifted. I think you're one of the greatest evangelists on the planet. I don't know many people that can communicate to lost humanity like you. Where did that come from? And what is your, why do you love lost people? Because what happens in church, lost people are kind of a, a means to an end. They're just kind of, yeah, we're dealing, we're really building this church. We're building the church. Lost people just happen to be a part of this. <clears throat> You've reversed that. It is about lost humanity to you. <clears throat> Talk to us about that, because I think that's something we've got to keep being reminded of. Well, thank, thank you for your, your kind words. I think that, that means a lot, especially from you. You you're, you know, have been such a faithful friend to us. Um, Dino's one of those guys who, who, who sends you prayer and money. You know, a lot of people are like, we send him our prayers your way, and you're like, thanks. And someone else is like, I'm praying for you. Here's some money. You're like, we will be friends forever. <laughs> um, you've always been real, and it's cool to have Kevin Gerald, Casey Treat. I remember when I first started preaching, Casey Treat was the first person outside of my church. He goes, I want you to come speak to my youth ministry. His youth pastor did not want that. No. Casey did not care. And I remember thinking, I... I get to preach outside my own church, and it's just a, it's an honor to, to, to be in the same room with some of these people. But I think, um, you know, when Brian said to go 
do this in New York. When we asked him to be a part of it, he just said, do what, do what y'all do, which is love, you know, just whoever's in front of you. And I think um, my, my passion as a pastor is to always remember that proximity creates passion and distance creates distortion. So whatever you're close to, you will be passionate about. Whatever you're far from, you will not care about. That's why if something's far away, you don't know if that's a Krispy Kreme sign or if it's like a 7-Eleven sign. This is life or death difference. The only way you're going to know is by getting closer. And I've seen pastors who start out passionate about the lost, and then over the years it becomes professional, yeah. becomes corporate. Now you start preaching messages, and you become that, that pastor who's the only guy in the room who doesn't know that he's out of style, yeah. missed the culture, got yes men around him. And I just think for me, I want to stay. I want my hands to be as dirty as they can be. I want to just not, not get so caught up in. I feel like we're so into the culture of New York City as far as reaching people that it's always news to me when people say things. And I think that the stuff that you hear from the outside, that's the biggest threat to what God is doing inside is when you take your eyes off the call and you start hearing the other voices. I mean, my, my dad taught me it's not what people say about you, it's who says what about you. And I think I've tried to stay locked into the right who. What does God say about us? What's the Holy Spirit calling us to do? What do the people that know us say? And the rest, hey, say what you're going to say. God bless you. We're going to be busy right here trying to reach person after person, whether you're famous, whether you're nameless, whether you're homeless, whether you're you know, a, a politician. We really don't care. And I think my, my job is to stay not professional. To me, this has never been a job. It's always been a calling. It's never been a bother because I still feel like it's an honor to be doing this. I don't belong here. Uh, yeah, I, I remember, um, if you're wondering if I'm emotionally unstable, it's 100%. Uh, I'll just let that out right now. And I just remember, I just remember, I've never felt like it's us and them. And sometimes Christians go there real quick. You say that again. That is well, us huge. and them. So like when people say love the love the you know hate the hate the sin, but you know love the sinner. I mean, I always say, are you talking about yourself? Because that that's such a weird cliche. I don't know what you mean by that. And I think I, I still feel like I'm new. I still feel that's why at our church we try to take time to not assume that everybody's in on this because I think we already have barriers. And you come into church and you feel like you're the weird one. And the first thing I always tell people is we get that this is weird. We get that our hands are lifted because of this. We read this Bible, no matter what you heard in your weird, you know, uh, theology class at NYU, this is still the word of God. We believe it's real. You might not believe that. We believe that. And you're going to see people to your left and to your right that look different. Like we explain everything because I feel like the, the, if you come into our church, we don't want you to feel like you don't belong because you don't believe yet. And I think that's been a staple of Hillsong Church through and through because I walked in 20 years old, saw Brian Houston preaching. Up to that point, I had written off church for my life. I was like, I have no choice but to be saved because I don't want to go to hell. But the church itself, I mean, I just I thought I'm never going to drink the charismatic Kool-Aid. I'm never going to do the whole church thing. I can't relate to people like this. We've all been in services where we're praying passionately, not because it's good. We're just praying that God ends this long, horrible thing. <laughs> And I walk in, I walk into Hillsong Church and I see people that love life. I see people that act like they want to be there. I, I see Brian get up and preach and I'm like, this is, this can't be right because I understand what he's saying. <laughs> and we live in our country. I think there are preachers who, who intentionally try to make people feel like they don't get it. 
like, I'm going to use the biggest words I can, and I'm going to have you leave here feeling like you're even further from God. People leave saying, that preacher was awesome. I'm terrible. I don't think Jesus had that design ever. I think the point is for the preacher to get out of the way enough so people can know how close God really is. So if I'm going to use a word that makes me sound educated, but you feel lost, who's losing? And I think, so Brian's up there preaching, and I'm like, this makes sense. I'm convicted, but yet I'm hopeful. I want to come back. This is weird. And I've never left. I think that that's, that's kind of been my, my story with church is I found a place from, uh, that I felt like I can, I can actually, I can get better here. And so to me, I think people, reaching people, I always tell pastors, if you don't know anybody that's not a Christian, you're going to get in trouble quick. You might on the surface be fine because I think there's a lot of churches in America that are giant and they're filled with Christians. I, I just feel like that what we have in our church is people say what's different about your church because often people come visit and they'll leave and they'll be like, this is, this is overrated. I'm like, yeah, exactly. God's grace is underrated. We, we do music. We preach average sermons. We are understaffed. Um, we don't have venues. It smells like alcohol in here. Um, you better have one hand up and worship the other hand on your wallet because you could leave here without your belongings. But... but what we, uh, you know, what we, what we do have is this, is this constant tension of every other person doesn't believe. And you care about stuff if something's on the line. So if you come to church every week and, and nobody's with you, you don't really care about songs. You don't care about the carpet. But the moment someone brings a friend, isn't it amazing how faith-filled they are? They're like, they're worshiping and they're, they care. What was the difference? Oh, you got some value in the service. If that's a part of your culture, it's amazing. It's not, it's not an option. Of course I'm going to volunteer because I'm not bringing my five friends. If that weird person is going to be the greeter, i got to work my way up to take his role. Uh, I'm not judging him, but it's you or me. So i, I gotta, I got to get involved in the greeting team, not because I love Jesus, because I don't want you to be hugging my friends for 10 seconds. And I think that that's just real church. And, but what makes our church special is that we always say, if we have the greatest service ever, uh, technically a 10 out of 10, it should always be a 9, because there's always somebody else that should have been there. So I've never once, we used to do this, um, and we used to catch flack for stuff that was just, I, I, have, I've, I have a newfound grace for not judging people by a soundbite or a picture that you cannot understand. Um, and that's just part of our own journey. But I remember we used to have eight services on Sunday. We used to have a 9.30-ish at this place called Irving Plaza. And it was just insane. And I remember we would leave that. And I had a couple friends who worked in some nightclubs. And we would go from the last service, ending at about 10.30, 11. And it would be like the height of our, when we're really, we're, we're doing okay. And I'd go visit a friend who would work in these clubs in New York. And I would walk in, I'd look out and see these thousands of people who don't have a clue who we are, what we're doing, and I'd leave. I'd go to bed every Sunday night going, we got work to do. We got work to do. We got work to do. We didn't go to clubs to be cool. We actually went to um, clubs just to make sure that we, I, I have a disdain for people who will invite people to their church, but would never set foot on their property. I think that's weird. So before I invite my friends to church, I always try to get to know what they do first so I can go to their place first, no matter where it is. You work at Foot Locker, I'm coming. You work at a club, I'm coming. I've had people get shocked. I can't believe you're here. I'm like, I'm a Christian. I'm not a, you know, I'm not some alien weirdo. Like, I'm going to survive. And, and people will curse and be like, hey, it's a pastor. I'm like, my ears are going to be all right. Like, it's, 
but I used to I used to give guys Bibles. I uh, still do when I can. I'm getting older. Like I'm 39. I got I, people say, do you still do stuff like that? I'm like, not as much. Not because I love Jesus less. I'm just tired. But I used to I used to wrap Bibles in newspapers, um, and I would because I don't want to give somebody like this cool you know Bible in the middle of a club or whatever or a DJ. But we would wrap them in newspapers, and uh, my wife would sometimes get up at one. I'm like, Laura, I need you to wrap these these Bibles, she'd be like, babe, you know, she'd wrap them in a newspaper and I'd go in because they looked like other material that you would be getting on the street. And I left the club, he goes, some guy goes to me, he goes, man, you guys are doing really well in this city. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. He's like, yeah, I don't normally say that to people who are pushing the wrong things. He really thought we were in there dealing drugs. And we were dropping off Bibles to guys that were cool in newspapers just so they would... And uh, it, it's stuff like that that, and I'd read a blog the next day about, you know, Hillsong Church, it's, it's, you know, dealing drugs. And I'd think, ah, oh, you know, I, I, there's something about making sure you, you feel humanity again. Like, I, I don't turn on the TV and just go, ah, oh. you know, I don't look at our president right now and just, ah. Oh. No, someone said, how do you feel about our president? I said, I feel like I should pray for him. Uh, how do you feel about the United States of America? I feel like I love it. I'm proud to be a part of this. We're broken, but my gosh, Jesus is going to shine a light. How do you feel about the lost, broken, you know, sinful New York City culture? I love it because God loves it. And I'm going to keep fighting until we see as many people as we can turn to see this. I love it. You know, you, you, got, you did something I've never seen anybody do before, which there's probably a lot of that. And... Uh, but I came and spoke one time. You, you graciously had me there. And in, in between the service, I walk in, and you've changed into basketball clothes. And I was like, what, what are we doing? Are we, I mean, is this like the basketball break? Because all I got is a step back jumper left. That's all I got left. And, uh, you got a little bit of a... Yeah, and, 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 he's the and you said, no, there's a, there's, some, there's a drug dealer that's playing ball near here. And I'm going to go connect with him real quick. And I'm going to go play a couple games. You got church. I'm going to go handle that. In between, I mean, you just left services. And I was just like, okay, awesome. I've never done that before. I've had like a latte in between services. It's pretty big. I've shook hands in the foyer. Just outside of my zone. But, you know. Before you're shaking hands, is it? We're running out of time. We're running out of time. And so I think for me, I'm like, you know, we have broken every rule but sin when it comes to getting people in church. We've lied about what we do. We have told people, like, some guy was like, we had a, a, a huge line one time and I was out there and some guy goes, What's in there? I was like, What do you think it is? And he goes, Is it some sort of a show? I'm like, Sure. You know, and, and I remember that guy, you know, getting saved. And there's other people who will, they don't, people don't know how good our God is. And so I think I had one of my best friends, he, was, he worked security in a club. And I went in there one time and I just said, I said, you want to come to church? And he's like, man, I work every Sunday. I said, how, how much would it cost you? How much do you get paid to be here? And he said, X amount. I said, I'll pay you that. You know, if, if that's what it takes, I'll, I'll just pay you. He's like, just to come to church? I said, absolutely. He's like, it's a great deal. You know, and, uh, you know, he's been on our staff now for five years. And I think um, that's not because we're, he, he's worth it. He was worth it. Take me back, because I, I want to hear this. Y'all been there, is it 11 years? That's it feels like 50. It's been seven. Seven. Yeah. Take me back. I know 
you and, and Joel, Pastor Brian, take me back to those, those days of we're launching, we're doing this. It's no longer talk. And, I mean, just visit those moments for a second. There's some tough, some tough little stretches there where I just was like, we are so, so far in over our head. I don't know if anybody can ever relate to that feeling. Anybody in here? Really? 17 people are going to raise their hand? There's somebody up there with both hands. We're, we're friends. I think, you know, Brian was awesome, but at the same, like, he's one of the most releasing pastors you'll ever find. Like, it's weird. You're only going to go one of two ways as a, as a pastor. You're going to go constricting and get insecure. Or you're going to go really releasing and be secure. And God's always going to increase your territory. That's Brian. And I remember he sat down with Joel and I. And he was like, um, you know, because I kind of invited myself to be a part of Hillsong, New York City. There was no invitation. Brian never asked me. Joel said, hey, my dad's going to do something in New York. And I said, we want to be a part of that. That's how that went down. There was no, like, um, Brian was kind of like, you know. (laughs) But we were prepared to do it without being, like, you know, running it. We just wanted to be a part of it. And I think he said to me, he said, this is the deal. Here's your canvas. And here's the, the, the patterns and the principles of who we are as a church. But I'm not going to tell you how to paint it. I'm not going to tell you what colors to use. That's why God's chosen you. And I remember leaving that meeting going, this is good and bad. It's bad because I, I, I wanted him to give me 10 things I had to do because if it failed, it's on him. <laughs> I left that meeting going, this doesn't go well. There's no excuses because he's released me to hear from heaven from myself. And I think, you know, my, our, our road there thus far, and that's why it's really awkward to be here because we've only been here for seven years. I do feel like we have something to say, but like I said, I honor the men and women in here that have been doing it so much better, so much longer. Um, I, I want to be more like you. And maybe you haven't had the acclaim or the people know about it, but I know God knows about it. And if you're in here and nobody's thanked you for what you've done, um, thank you. You know, we don't do it for the stuff on this earth anyway, and God sees it. Um, but I know our biggest, my, I was so excited to be here because I, I, just to be able to tell somebody, you're going to make it. You're absolutely going to make it. Church doesn't, it's not about what we make it. If you can love people well, if you can honor people and treat everybody as who they are, spectacular and special, you'll have a church that matters. And whether it shows up on this earth or not, we always talk about numbers, and they do matter, and they're all important. Every number matters because every person does. But if we are in this to have the American model of a successful church, we are missing it. There are going to be churches where your impact does not match your numbers. There will be seasons where it doesn't, see like, it doesn't seem like what you're seeing is what you're believing. But I think those are the churches and those are the leaders that actually end up changing the world. So our goal has never been to have a big church. Someone said, you know, hey, how does it feel to have a successful church? I said, you, you got it a little bit wrong. We were successful the day we answered the call. Yes, sir. That's it. This is on God. Whether, like, the, the amount of people, whatever's going on, I said, our job is to obey. The outcome is on God. So we're happy. It's cool. I do think it's more fun to have, you know, things that are visibly flourishing than not. No, we'll keep it real with that. But at the same time, if, if it didn't go this way, I still don't feel like I would feel like a failure. And I don't feel like a success because our church has a platform that's growing. I feel like we're honoring God because we answered a call and we're loving people no matter who they are, where they are. And uh, I think God's getting the glory for it. What do you think? Oh, that's incredible. What do you think, like, the hope for the future? 
When you, have, you always have a, a positive outlook. God's going to move. What is your hope for the future? What is your prayer for the church, for the future? These are great questions. Gosh. Uh, and I see your Jordans down there, by the way. Don't try to act like you Fresh. Louisiana Mafia. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. Dino's always got you stuff that the players the don't have. I'm, I know a guy, I know a guy. What you need, I got you. Uh, I need a helicopter, what kind? It's like, okay. Um, thank you, by the way, for being who you've been to the local church for so, so long. Thank you for leading the way. Thank you for loving people. Thank you for being an honoring, amazing, legend, dad, pioneer, a man who has done it and continues to do it. You are special. You've changed my life, and you've changed a lot of lives in here. But thank you for not stopping, for not giving up, for fighting the good fight of faith. I'm one of many who wants to thank you Doctor, my wife, and my God. I think the local church, my hope is that it looks like you, looks like Brian, looks like people who have uh, went through seasons of sunshine and worshiped, and they've been standing out in the rain worshiping. I think we've been known sometimes as a church to, we were really loud when we're winning, and we're quiet when we're losing. And I think Jesus never told us we were going to win all the time. Jesus said that he has already won. And whether you're in a season of, someone recently reminded me that we can't let seasons determine our story. And I think that would be a word from heaven for some pastors in here who maybe have bought the lie that the season you're in is your whole story. Our story is Jesus, and he goes with us in those seasons of lack and those seasons of frustration and those seasons of when you leave that art conference and you got all the analytics right and it's not working, or when you have the right song list and the worship is awful, or when you totally rip off a Jensen Franklin sermon and didn't have the same... Um, I think... My hope for the local church is that our eyes would be on Jesus and we would unleash uh, the presence of God. And I think that's, that we have the right to do that and we're called to do that. And I think the more people get their eyes off themselves and maybe we can pray for people as we end this. For those of you that um, might struggle with feeling like um, you don't have what it takes, well, welcome to finally being ready, I think, to be an effective minister. Um, it took me a while to maybe get to that side of the, the tracks where I said, okay, I'm definitely not worthy, but that can only last for so long. That, that's an annoying type of false humility where someone's like, I'm not worthy. Yeah, we get that. None of us are. But then when God starts to get the glory through your weakness, I think that's when you start to feel strength. So if you feel weak in this place or you feel like you don't have the money, the funds, the gifting, the resource, you, you are absolutely in line for a breakthrough. And if you can keep on pushing through, we are a trophy of God's grace, just like your church is. And we are nowhere near where we need to be. But thank God we're not where we should be had he not saved us and called us in the first place. So um, I would love to pray for people, anybody who yeah. feels like you're in a season right now where you know it's going to turn and maybe it's not just there yet and you feel like maybe God has given you that word that there's fresh 
fresh anointing coming your way. There's fresh breakthrough coming your way, and you're going to make a fresh stand to say, you know what, I'm not going to get discouraged. I'm not going to relent. I'm in New York City where people came with a dream, and their experience changed their theology, so they moved the whole goalpost. I met a guy recently. When he first started the church, he was like, God wants churches to grow. He went through a couple of tough seasons. He's like, that's actually not the way it is in the Bible now. And I thought, interesting, in five years, the Bible has changed. I don't think that's the case. I refuse to look at somebody and because my last friend died, pray for that friend any differently. I'm going to pray what God said to pray, no matter what I see. Um, I'm believing for revival in our cities. I'm believing for breakthrough on these streets. I don't care if it's a black church or a white church. In Jesus' name, we're going to have kingdom churches. I don't care if you have a, 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 a big thing of money to work with or you have nothing. We are going to pray that God continues to put his hand on the local church because it's still the hope of the world. It's still the answer that these streets need to hear about. And I, for one, believe that Jesus still is going to have his way. If you believe it, can you stand and give God a shout of praise? We're going to believe it. Can I pray for you for just a moment? Can you maybe just bow your head? Can you take a deep breath? Just for a moment, just take a deep breath. We're going to try to pray with a, with a smile, with confidence that God's going to do what he said he was going to do, because he is. And if you wouldn't mind going to the next level and just grabbing the hand of the person next to you. Lord, I pray that you would continually break our hearts for lost people that we would lead those that are found and we would reach those that are lost. Lord, I pray for an evangelistic breakthrough in the way that we think, in the way that we lead, in the way that we structure, Lord. I pray for the, the, the doors of our churches to swing so far open, for the flood of people to be so huge, so ridiculous, the, the, the news outlets, um, the culture that is unbelieving, there, there would be no mistake that God is still at work in the United States of America and beyond. Lord, I pray for our focus to be so clearly on you that it will be unmistakable who's changing lives, who's making broken things whole. Lord, I pray for anybody in here that is discouraged. Holy Spirit, you are the lifter of our head. You are the one that pushes us when we feel like laying down. Lord, I speak life to those that have thought or thought felt death. I speak hope to those that have felt so discouraged that they can't go another day. In the name of Jesus, may your fresh power, fresh anointing flow in this place. Lord, we speak provision to flow through our churches. We thank you, Lord, that you're going to continue to open up doors that nobody else can open. You're going to continue to give favor where we can't earn it ourselves. And Lord, together as a company of people, we give you praise for what you've done. We give you praise for what you're doing. And Lord, we give you praise ahead of time because the best is truly yet to come. We love you in Jesus' name. If you believe it, can we just take a moment and give our God a shout of praise in this place? We're going to sing Christ alone. Come on, sing it out. Come on, can you lift your voice in this place? Cornerstone, we make songs. 
show you love. Come on. Let's lift up. Thank you, Lord, for what a gift to the body of Christ. Give our lives. And uh, I know with this book, On the Moment, On the Moment, and so many other resources, uh, I listen to them constantly because it helps me to continue to reach lost humanity. And he is a gift. And I just thank God for him being able to be here, bringing his daughter, all the guests that are here. So we're going to take uh, about a 20-minute break. We've had a great morning and only 20 minutes because the the undeniable and there is nobody like john gray and he's going to bring us into the afternoon then we'll have lunch after that so we've got a lot of sponsors in the foyer catch the restrooms catch a sponsor be back here in 20 minutes because we're unleashing john gray come on god bless you thanks a lot <laughs> 